Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is the Maritime Ireland radio show about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. The sea around our coastline, the inland waters, lakes, rivers and streams are all part of Ireland's marine sphere and vitally important to this island nation. They are a fundamental part of Ireland socially and economically because our connection with the sea is as old as time itself. On Maritime Ireland we discuss and report on all aspects of the marine sphere, bringing together the maritime community. There's a good feeling about being a member of a community and everyone is welcome to join the Maritime Community. Maritime Ireland is broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcasts. You may not have known, and I certainly didn't, that there are 76,000 barriers on Irish rivers. 3,000 alone on one of the three sisters, the River Barrow. The overall number is actually quite big from our estimates, where you have the 1.2 million across Europe. We think there's somewhere in the region of about 76,000 potential barriers in Ireland. Cahill Gallagher is Head of Research and Development at Inland Fisheries Ireland, the state agency responsible for fisheries management of rivers, lakes and coastal estuaries within 12 nautical miles of the shore. River barriers can be weirs, culverts, dams, and the concern about them is their effect on the free-flowing of river waters. That's one of our topics in this edition, and another is pirates, but of a different kind to the ones you might immediately be thinking of. These had a different approach to waves, one kind of which they could use effectively, the other, in maritime language, scuppered them. Well, we're sorry to tell you that due to the severe weather conditions and also to the fact that we're shoving quite a lot of water, we're closing down and the crew are at this stage leaving the ship. Uh, Obviously, we hope to be back with you as soon as possible. The last broadcast from the MV Mi Amigo before she sank, also known as Radio Caroline. Was that promise of a return kept? Listen on to hear more. There are 1.2 million barriers on rivers in Europe, which fascinates me. Europe's rivers are broken, that seems a bit dramatic, but it's the finding of the AMBER report, a collaborative project between European marine scientists and universities, which included University College Cork and Fisheries Ireland, where Cahill Gallagher is Head of Research and Development and has been telling me all about those river barriers. The overall number is actually quite big from our estimates, where you have the 1.2 million across Europe. We think there's somewhere in the region of about 76,000 potential barriers in Ireland. And they can be at all different levels, you know, be minor barriers, but they can be major barriers and, and dams, which are familiar on, on some of the bigger rivers you might have. And, and I suppose there's something that have built up over time, whether it be weirs or 
bridges, aprons, culverts, all those different types of things are, are, are things are potential barriers to fish passage. And, and that's the overall figure. And I suppose a strong focus from Inland Fisheries Ireland is on the fish passage, but also under the Water Framework Directive, Ireland uh, itself is responsibility to look at these barriers to make sure that the rivers are free because they have the potential, you know, they're a measure under the water quality under the Water Framework Directive as well. So I suppose that's the history and the size of it. And, and our role really is to try with us to find out where these barriers are and how much of a, uh, an issue they are in relation to fish passage. I guess while that sounds simple to look at them and say, what well, if they are or aren't a barrier to fish passage, when you think of the different types of fish species we have, you know, you have your eels, which are, you know, slither along and, and you have juvenile stages that come back into the rivers and then you have other fish that are better able to jump like the salmonid. So it, it, it takes quite a bit of assessment at different water levels to understand how much of an impact they are having on fish. So they could either be man-made structures, as you say, for a particular purpose, bridges, etc., or they could be caused by, I suppose, ha- whatever happens in the river, changes in the river, buildings, etc., etc. But the main concern is they would affect the way fish pass upriver or, or downriver, as the case may be. That would be the main concern. Um, it does, they do lots of other things. So if you have an impoundment of a river, for example, it won't let the sediments or, or, or gravels naturally flow through the natural process. So it changes the natural habitat of the river, if you want to call it that. And also can lead to things like an increase in climate uh, impact. So a heating of the water, as you build up that body of water, it can take on more heat, for example. Um, it can it can have, a, a, the loss of habitat, it can create um, things like hazards even, you know, lots of issues where, where people are using dams and, and maybe it acts as a hazard for, for people using the immunity. But also it does add, the other side of it from a public interest perspective, it does have public benefits on occasion. You know, there may be cases where a water body is impounded and it's been used for recreational activities like boating or canoeing or, or, or different types of activities as well. So um, in some cases it can be seen, these, some of these barriers can be seen as a benefit as well. So basically free-flowing rivers are essential to being healthy rivers and uh, barrier removal is important where it interferes with that. And, and yes, and, and I suppose if possible, that would be the ideal situation is that you would be able to remove a barrier altogether. But in some cases, that's not always practical. Uh, the barrier itself might be there for a long time. And it's often difficult to ascertain who owns the barrier, for example, or how to get permissions to remove it or to take actions. And sometimes they're in for different functions in a river. So not only, I suppose, from a fish perspective, the ideal situation would be removal, but then again, from migration, you can also put in mitigation measures. So you can put in all sorts of different types of fish passes to help fish migrate up to the river. Um, it's often more difficult to, to aid fish that migrate down through the river, but mitigation measures can also be put in place. And they're obviously very necessary where there's something like bridges, dams and all permanent structures which are needed. Are there any parts of the country which are more susceptible to this than other parts? Well, I suppose that's something we're trying to establish, but I'll give you a general feel maybe for, for one of the catchments that we've done more work in, which is the River Barrow. And when we started off there, we looked at the possibility of, of, of the number of barriers that they have there. And when we initially assessed it, we looked at the potential of our 3,000 barriers. And when we went and did the technical assessments 
of that catchment, which involves walking out there, taking measurements, looking at water levels, and doing some calculations. We found that actual 319 of, the, of those 3,000 odd barriers were barriers to fish passage. And then they can break up into different types of, of it, with the biggest one being actual bridge, bridges and culverts. So, you know, it's different in different catchments and different issues depending on what activities. But I assume, you know, that the more rural west of Ireland areas without the same level of, of roads and, and, and bridges are probably more nature-like than you might find on the East Coast as a general rule. It's, fa- it's fascinating. I would never have thought of so many barriers, as we call them, on rivers. It's a fascinating study. Obviously, which you described there with walking rivers, etc., to get them and so many thousand on the barrow alone. It's a huge survey job. It is, and, and we're lucky that while well, we have a very small team actually doing the barrier assessment work uh, in IFI, we have, we have as an organisation staff that are walking rivers and they're able to do this type of work as part of their, their, their daily bread, if we want to call it that. But also we partner with all the other agencies that are out in the catchments trying to help us to identify these barriers. And I have to give credit to the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Governments that have set aside some money to help us to do these assessments. So it's a joint effort. Uh, not just IFI, across the agencies that are working on on the waterways and trying to help us to build up a big picture of what's happening in Ireland. Cahill Gallagher, Head of Research and Development at the State Agency Fisheries Ireland. And all of that might cause you to think anew about our rivers. An email from listener JP Baldwin says that the government's marine planning framework needs more highlighting and discussion about what is proposed. It's also been pointed out to me that, though likely to be the most impacted marine sector, the fishing industry was excluded from the government's 20-member advisory group about marine protected areas. Consultation on the proposals remains open until Friday, July 30th. And hard to believe this, perhaps, but it is true. Ten retired admirals have been arrested in Turkey for signing a statement opposing President Erdogan's plan to build Canal Istanbul, comparable to the Panama and Suez canals. A project to connect the Black Sea to the Sea of Marmara and thus to the Aegean and Mediterranean. The retired naval admirals said his plan would lead to destructive militarisation of the Black Sea. You're tuned to the voice of peace and good music, coming live from the North Sea all through the night on 259 metres medium wave, the voice of Radio Caroline. The first breach in state control of broadcasting was made in the marine sphere. The pirates, as they were called, radio stations on ships before commercial licensing, which is why later land-based illegal stations were dubbed pirate radio. They were started from a ship anchored outside British limits off Essex on the southeast English coast at Easter 1964 by Roland O'Rahilly, whose family owned the port of Greenore in County Louth, so he had a head start on outfitting a vessel. The Irishman was joined by Scottish banking heir George Drummond to start Radio Caroline. 
It used five different vessels during its broadcast history, one of which was the MV Miamigo, that started life as a three-masted schooner known as the SS Margaretha in 1921. You heard its final broadcast at the outset of this programme as it sank in the Thames estuary, leaving only the 127-foot-tall mast above the water. The crew of four were rescued by the Sheerness Oradalai lifeboat. Roland O'Rahilly died in April of last year. So this month brings the memory of Radio Caroline, as Justin Marr reports. OK, here we go, at three hours of the best music you ever heard. C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, Caroline, Caroline, Caroline. Radio Caroline was the spearhead of the offshore pirate radio movement off the coast of the UK in the 1960s, which aimed to highlight pop music far more extensively than BBC Radio did at the time. It did break the mould in the 1960s, Radio Caroline. Where else could you have heard music all day and all night? Nick Richards is a former Radio Caroline DJ. There's a kind of a buzz you're listening to something which isn't quite strictly legal. I think there's a nice something about that, a little bit of danger, you know, when you're young. It was the only way you could do it because there was only a certain amount of radio stations allowed to exist. But this man Ronan wanted to create a different radio station. And the only way he could do it was stick it on a ship and send it out to sea where nobody could interfere with it. Surname? O'Reilly. Christian name? Ronan. Age? 27. Nationality? Irish. Religion? Roman Catholic. Occupation? Marine broadcaster. Political views? I suppose I'm an anarchist. Caroline was the brainchild of Ronan O'Reilly who had made his name on the nightclub circuit in London. Disgusted by the domination of the major record labels over the pop music programmes of the time, he decided to set up his own station and provide music that people wouldn't hear anywhere else. Ronan was a lovely man, sadly he passed away last April. He would never accept someone saying, it can't be done. Ronan would find a way to make it happen. Ronan had a dream that Caroline was a little bit of freedom operating that nobody could control. And I love the idea that Ronan had of there should be a place in the world for Caroline to continue. We've got to make this work and we can make it work. And I think that was what Ronan was all about. And it was nice to feed off something so positive. And as we enter this new phase in our broadcasting history, you naturally have our assurance that we intend to stay on the air. Whilst Radio Caroline was a sensation when it first started in 1964, it was estimated that the station made £7 for every record played at one stage. The British government, although unable to take direct action against the pirates who are in international waters, would respond by introducing the Marine Broadcasting Offences Act in 1967. That would prohibit UK businesses from advertising on offshore pirates. Without any UK revenue, Caroline eventually ran into serious debt and saw both of its ships, Caroline and the Mi Amigo, be seized by a salvage company. For no man will ever forget, Monday, August the 14th, 1967. Radio Caroline would go off the air for four years until Ronan O'Reilly was able to regain the MV Mi Amigo in 1972. Nick Richards would first board the ship in 1979. I remember clearly the first day approaching the ship. The thing that 
struck me was how small it was. And I thought, this is the ship which caused so many problems for the British government. They tried to close it so many times. So many big names worked on board. All this has happened on this ship. But as you approached it, you could see how bad it was. Uh, rust everywhere. The ship was in a bad way. 60 years old, no maintenance, patched up where we could. The problem with the ship and why it hadn't been repaired, there was nowhere to take it in Europe. It was an old ship. It would have cost a fortune to get it back to some sort of uh, seaworthy condition. My latter stages out there, there was no working engine. We had no ship's wheel. Uh, the compass was gone. I think somebody had claimed that in the past. It was, it was a hulk of a very rusty 60-year-old ship, but the radio station worked great. Caroline and Mi Amigo invite you to sail away on an ocean of love. The MV Mi Amigo started life as the SS Margaret, built as a three-masted schooner in Germany in 1921. Before becoming the home of Radio Caroline, she had carried cargo around the Baltics and had been commandeered by the German Navy during World War II. The concerns over the safety of the vessel would come to a head in disastrous fashion on the 19th of March, 1980. Nick Richards was on board at the time. I got up on deck and I noticed that there's a navigation beacon, which used to be quite a few miles away, was extremely close. And that shouldn't have been. It was either that was floating around the North Sea or we were. Uh, so the first thing to do was put the emergency anchor chain down. It was tied with rope, but it had actually corroded to the rest it was on. So it took us about an hour with sledgehammers and an axe to get the emergency anchor chain over. We straight away went up to the bridge, spoke to the Coast Guard to let them know what was happening. And they were able to tell us that at low water, we'd probably have about half a meter of water under the ship because where the anchor had gone down, it had gone right on a sandbank. As it got later that night, and as the tide changed, there was the four of us in the kitchen or the galley. And we could feel suddenly this rumbling. And it was the ship um, coming off the sandbank and such a gradual lifting of the ship that it, it began to pound, like the hull was pounding on the sandbank. And we were thinking like, oh, no, what's going on here? And it must have been about half nine, ten o'clock at night. And I looked into the engine room and I could see suddenly there was a couple of feet of water which hadn't been there before. And that was with the electric pump, pumping loads of water over the side. But water was coming into the ship faster than we could pump it out. So the Coast Guard had sent the lifeboat out to us. It had been just sitting off monitoring and asking us, did we want to come off? And I think it was shortly before midnight we decided, yeah, this is probably a good time to come off. Caroline broadcasting on 319 metres, 963 kilohertz. Well, we're sorry to tell you that due to the severe con weather conditions and also to the fact that we're shipping quite a lot of water, we're closing down and the crew are at this stage leaving the ship. Uh, obviously, we hope to be back with you as soon as possible. The MV Mi Amigo would sink the next day. Media coverage seemed to suggest that the station was done for, but Nick Richards wasn't convinced. I kind of thought it may be the end of the Mi Amigo because of its age, but I kind of knew Ronan would pull something out of the bag, which he did about three or four years later, got another ship, launched it, big, tough ship. 
And the name lives on because it still exists online. They have a small AM uh, transmitter operating in the UK. And occasionally, uh, some ex-DJs go out to the ship for a weekend and they do programs from their new Radio Caroline ship. Justin Marr telling the story of Radio Caroline, the radio pirate which inspired the 2009 film The Boat That Rocked. And again, thanks to our listener Eugene Furlong for suggesting that item. Always glad to hear from listeners. Now a true story. A poem written to remember the death of a baby. Ryan Minto, born April 18, 1996 and died in June 1996, aged just nine and a half weeks. The poem is from the debut collection Crow's Books by Anne MacDonald. Anne is a spoken word artist and writer who coaches and gives training and facilitation in creative writing. Her poem Three Hours Out, as it's named, she says, has relevance for fishing families everywhere. Her husband worked on the trawler Caledonia Rose out of Hoth and the poem tells the story of a message out to the boat with bad news and the subsequent coming ashore of the crew. We got the call three hours out to sea. I know that we were thinking all the same. I wonder, is it him or is it me? We had no choice but wait the hours out with endless cigarettes and cups of tea. Too harsh for crackling radio to explain, I hoped that it was them and wasn't me. We made talk so small it meant nothing. The haul we got, the time we lost the nets, and when I won the each way bet, but still, the time dragged every minute single out of three excruciating hours coated in the sour smell of oilskins mixed with salt. I listed all the possibles for heartache, knowing each man counted out the same. Was the family affected theirs or was it ours? Strong men rendered naked in the rain. As we turned for home and braced against the wind, a small crowd gathered silent on the quay and my head spun somewhere between fear and hope. I wished that it was them and wasn't me. Our hearts broke for the man whose news it was. His hands reached down to haul him from the deck. Words whispered on the wind were caught and death. Feeling glad, then sickened with the shame, but knowing it was not my news to claim. We got the call three hours out to sea. I wished it wasn't him, that it was me. And MacDonald's poem of a tragic event for a fisherman. A true story. Her debut collection, Crow's Books, is available on Amazon for €15. Staying with the fishing industry, there's quite a lot of controversy about the Netflix film Sea Spiracy. Some people stating they'll never eat fish again because of what they saw. Balance is essential to the accuracy of any debate. 
The Marine Stewardship Council is the defining international authority, a non-profit organisation, whose certification programme gives an eco-label for sustainable fishing catches when buying seafood. That's accepted widely by the fishing industry. I was surprised the council wasn't interviewed for the Netflix documentary, so I asked why. The council refused to take part, it says, because the filmmakers were unlikely to be balanced or fair. The oceans face severe challenges, the council says, but we do not agree that ending fishing, suggested by the documentary, is a realistic solution. Turning now to seeking solutions to the effects of pandemic restrictions on water sports, I've been made aware of considerable frustration around the coast and on inland waters over the concentration of Taoiseach Michal Martin and his government ministers on shore-based sports, highlighting golf and tennis, without mention of boating, surfing, angling, canoeing, rowing, swimming, sailing. Is this an indication again of government disregard for the marine sphere and the waters which surround this island nation? Harry Herman is Chief Executive of Irish Sailing, the national representative body whose view I sought. Will sailing go ahead this year, including two world championships, one each scheduled for Cork and Dublin? Yeah, we would hope so. Um, One of the key messages that we've been pushing very, very hard over the last uh, three or four months is that with the non-contact sports uh, there is no difference in activity for training as distinct from competition um, so you know if, if you're hitting a tennis ball to each other and you happen to be keeping score uh, you know there's no difference in activity same for sailing if you're sailing around a course in a coaching environment if you happen to be taking the time of each boat as they cross the finish line uh, you know there's no difference in activity and that that message has got through. So, um, you know, the, the kind of chain of command, if you like, is that the, the, the sport expert group that we make our submissions to, uh, and that group then passes the recommendations up to the government advisory group, um, who then uh, obviously go through to cabinet. So we know the sport expert group has identified the non-contact sports as being a safe sport to compete in uh, and therefore we should be allowed to compete at levels where we're allowed to train. Um, and the, the, the key uh, sort of lobby now, if you want to call it that, is to try and get that message through to cabinet uh, as such, because when, you know, when the recommendations come up from the sport expert group, uh, you know, cabinet or the government advisory group take all the advice from all the different sectors uh, on board they then look at that in um, in relation to the NEFET advice. They then assess the public mood. Uh, they look at the, the vaccine rollout. And all of these elements then combine together to produce the next set of um, restrictions or enhancements to level five or the decision to go down to level four or three or two. Um, and, and that's where the unknown, that's where the frustration is, I think, for for all sports uh, and sailing would be included in event organisers is that, you know, we just don't know what's coming in in May and whether or not we are actually going to be allowed to organise events or when we're going to be allowed to organise events for sailing. Um, And I think, you know, one of the advantages for us uh, is that we can take part in competition at club level, which is, um, 
different from many other sports. You have to travel to another club in order to compete. So, you know, we, we can stay in our own location and, and compete. So that's definitely a strength that we have. Uh, and as I say, it's just a question of keep, um, keep banging the message through to the, to, uh, government that, um, you know, that we're, we're safe and that, uh, that competition is no different from training in our sport. It's a crucial time, the impression I get from clubs for sailing, for sailors, their families, even, I suppose, fair to say for those employed in, in the clubs and, uh, you know, suppliers of services to the sport, the chandleries. I think they all need a clear, balanced vision for going on this summer. That's a reasonable approach, isn't it? And reasonable and fair for people involved to ask for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I share that pain. I feel it. It's, um, it's, it's the lack of the ability to be able to plan ahead that is really causing huge problems for everyone. You know, if we knew uh, when we would be allowed to compete again, if we knew when we would be allowed to open our doors for training, uh, if we knew when we could um, organize events, if we knew when, uh, you know, world championships could be hosted, uh, you know, this year we've got potentially 4.7s in top of world championships that uh, are due to be hosted. You know, the, the event organizers for those events, I mean, are, are having huge problems because because they just don't know. And the reason they don't know is they're not getting direction from Irish Sailing. The reason they're not getting direction from Irish Sailing is because the government don't know. So, you know, it's a very, very difficult time for everyone. Uh, and I think the, the positive side of it is that, you know, the clubs are coping very, very well uh, under what is enormous pressure. And as you say, the, the chandleries and all the support elements for sailing uh, equally, I mean, they are, they're really struggling. Uh, and, you know, the hope is that the vaccines will take effect uh, and the anticipation is that we will be back sailing this summer. Harry Herman, Chief Executive of Irish Sailing and hopefully water sports will reopen. We're not a news programme being more reflective and discursive on the marine scene and your views on the marine sphere are very welcome for which there is a book award for the most interesting. Email to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. The programme and podcast comes from the historic coastal and maritime town of Yole on the East Cork coastline and CRY 104FM Yole. And is also broadcast in Cork on Bear Island Radio, UCC Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio. And in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Belmullet. On Southwest Clare Radio, Radio Kirkabosh Keen. On West Limerick 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and the Marine our website is tomaxweenymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. And our email is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Our phone and text number 0872 555 0872 555 
Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing.